Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast i'm here with david david for everyone out there listening can you please introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about yourself hi i'm david livermore i'm very recently retired as professor of medical microbiology for the university of east anglia and i'm still i still have an honorary position with the university uh before working for university of east anglia i spent uh 14 years heading the National Reference Laboratory on Antibiotic Resistance for Public Health England and its predecessors, which meant any, any hospital up and down the UK that saw unusually resistant bacteria could send them to us for a second opinion, a view on the mechanism of resistance, on the treatment of the patient and on the public health risk. Um, many years before that, investigating antibiotic resistance. Then, of course, in the last two years of the pandemic, uh, like every microbiologist, like every infectious disease specialist, I've been sucked into work on COVID, on taking a view on the public health responses that have been initiated from lockdowns to, to vaccination. Well, let's talk about um, the pandemic, for instance. What are your thoughts on the pandemic? Because I've heard the whole range of board. People think we're doing good. People think we're doing bad. I tend to give a lot of leeway for um, not knowing because, I mean, this is a brave step for all of us. We're all going into something new. So all the information right now, you just got to hope it's the best that we got. and We're rolling through it. But it seems like a lot of the methods, even lockdowns and even other types of actions that have been done seemed okay, we'll listen to you in the beginning. But then there's talks about lockdowns now. And we have studies saying that lockdowns are bad. Lockdowns actually worsen things when it comes to mental health issues and it comes to domestic violence. And masks are now being looked at saying masks actually can infect you even more. And it's, it's a lot of information out there. And it seems to be the complete opposite of what we were told in the beginning. But like I said, I give leeway for learning something and coming up there or coming up with new information later. But it seems like they're doubling down on a lot of things that are now proven that they actually might worsen in some aspects. Well, I, I would start by disputing the view that COVID is anything new. If you look at the past four or 500 years of history, humanity is regularly challenged by respiratory pandemics, on average once every two or three generations. Usually it's influenza, um, but there was, a, there was a pandemic in the uh, late 19th century, 1889 to 1894 were the dates that are usually given, which was dubbed the Russian flu, but which may have been a coronavirus. It may have been a, vi a virus that's, that's still with us called coronavirus OC43. So it's part, of, it's part of our human existence that we're challenged every two, three generations by, by a respiratory virus. Um, and in the past, 
people may have been frightened, but they were also quite fatalistic about this. They lived in a world in which people did succumb to many other infectious diseases. So it was one more of those unpleasant things that hit from time to time. We did have bad influenza pandemics in the late 1950s and the late 1960s, uh, each killing between half and a million people worldwide. But again, the reaction was fairly phlegmatic. Um, what's happened this time around is a totally new way of responding to a pandemic. Both the WHO uh, internationally and Public Health England in the UK had well written out and well rehearsed pandemic plans in 2019, um, which accepted that there would be significant mortality. But those plans were torn up swiftly in the spring of 2020. Whether they were torn up because it was suddenly felt that the public, that media, that our world of modern sensibilities found them unacceptable, whether it was uh, a view that, well, China's succeeding with lockdowns, um, take your pick. But we switched very suddenly to this model of lockdowns in practically every country. Sweden's an exception. Um, we now, I think, seeing the damage that lockdowns did to people's mental health, uh, to education, where, you know, if you were a kid from a middle-class family with a computer at home, lots of books, and a family that encouraged education, you could get by with online learning. But if you were a bright kid from a poor household with uh, rowdy siblings, your education's been wrecked as a result of this. Um, people working from home, yeah, it's fine for somebody like me at the end of my career. I can I could sit there typing out papers, heaven knows I had a massive backlog of things to do. Uh, lots of quite senior people could work comfortably from home, but it wasn't good for people who were at the start of their careers, needing to make connections, get used to office life, get used to how, how to get things done. And you see now, I don't know about the United States, but in the UK, a massive upsurge in inflation as a result of all the money printing that went on during, uh, during lockdowns and the disruption of the pandemic. Um, you, you see um, the, the, the driving license people all of a sudden have a six month backlog. The passport office has a six month backlog. The Inland Revenue, uh, the, the IRS uh, from, from US terminology is suddenly even slower than before to process any document. And you dig a little and all still working from home. The efficiency has been destroyed. So massive societal damage come from lockdowns. And more and more it's appreciated that they and the changes wrought from moving from a proper healthcare service to a COVID service led to lots and lots of misdiagnoses of other illnesses. So 
just to give you one example, that the apparent rate of bloodstream infections with E. coli, which is commonest agent of bacteremia, apparently went down 15% during lockdowns. I don't believe it disappeared. Most of the folks who got these E. coli bacteremias were, were, had a prior urinary tract infection. It was an overspill from that. They've succumbed at home instead of getting through the door of an accident and emergency and, and into hospital. And, and the list goes on and on. Cancer diagnoses uh, missed, um, mental health problems missed. All through this period when our health service was subverted to a COVID service. Um, we then come to, to what else was done. And vaccines were developed very, very quickly. And there was good in that. I don't think you can sensibly dispute that the vaccines did break the relationship between infection and death in early 2021. You can also compare places in East Asia, for example, Hong Kong, which had very low rates of uh, vaccination and about 50% of the very elderly in care homes. And when COVID finally did get into Hong Kong, there was substantial mortality there, much more than if you looked at other Southeast Asian countries, Taiwan uh, and South Korea, where they had much higher rates of vaccination of the very elderly. And once COVID did get in there, the population rates of, of, of death were much lower than in Hong Kong. So the vaccines have achieved something in terms of protecting the very elderly and vulnerable. However, that's very different from arguing that everybody should be vaccinated, of mandating vaccination, and Austria tied to mandate on a national basis, and the, 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 the US showed signs of going along that pathway until, as I understand it, the mandates were, 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 were registered as actually illegal and you still have companies that try to force all their employees to be vaccinated. There would be an argument for mandated vaccination if the vaccines were very good, but the ones we, haven't, we have are not very good. They give a matter of a few months protection, then there's a bounce back with the vaccinated getting infected and being perfectly able to transmit infection. Um, and then worst of all has been this vaccination of, of children, which is totally inappropriate because children are at very, very low risk of severe COVID, minimal risk of death. And the evidence points to natural infection giving you a longer lasting and broader protection than vaccination does. So for anybody who can safely withstand infection, better off getting infected than being vaccinated. So at one extreme, you've got the elderly who are very vulnerable and for whom I think it is, is still prudent to be vaccinated, but the very young children in particular, the, the argument for vaccination is extremely threadbare. And the, the, the risk, be it from myocarditis in boys particularly, uh, may outweigh, uh, 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 outweigh any benefit 
And what's more, the vaccination is with um, uh, is predicated on the original Wuhan strain of, of COVID, which is essentially extinct, not the circulating strains. So you may be inducing an almost mismatched immunity to the type of virus that people are going to get, which isn't, isn't desirable either. So where does your area of concern, I would say, fall? Like, I, I, I get, I, I think I agree with you 100%. Um, I also, my main focus is always with societal stuff, um, just mostly how people are like conditioned in such a sense, or maybe the information that the public is like, there's a lot of people, and especially now for YouTube guidelines, for instance, you can talk about if you've had an adverse reaction from a vaccine, but it has to be a personal story. And I think it's because the number of adverse reactions have started to increase a lot more to where it's a number you really can't be like, oh, like before, like, all right, so the whole thing was censorship. Censorship was to decide, they said, misinformation and disinformation. Now, if you talked about myocarditis in the very, very, very beginning, they said, no, that's disinformation, and they would ban you off YouTube. But now we know about myocarditis, and not saying that every single person who gets a vaccine is going to develop it. I'm not saying that at all, but they wouldn't even let you talk about it. So when you go and Google this, you wouldn't find it on the internet. You'd be like, Am I, am I, is this just out of nothing? Is this doesn't even exist? They took away the possible results, not showing it up there as this is from this article page. They just took it away entirely. They ban took it off the internet. And you get to this point of like, maybe I'm going in crazy. It obviously doesn't exist. It does exist, but they weren't showing it to you. That's an issue because you have a lot of people right now that are still 100%. You need to get your booster shot. We need to, like, I know people that are saying to get their two year olds vaccinated. And then they, they hate on you if you say, no, I don't want to really get forced to take something, then they consider you anti-vax. And you get into this scenario where you see people fighting over different types of narratives. Now, if we go back to what I was saying earlier about YouTube changing their policy to where if you have a personal experience of an adverse reaction uh, with a vaccine, that's okay. But you can't just talk about vaccines like this won't go on YouTube because we're talking about vaccines causing a side effect or something. That's already a no-no. Eventually, the narrative might switch. You see people stop reporting about vaccines. They used to have the number count on the news in the corner. They used to have the percentage of people that were vaccinated and how many more that need to get vaccinated. They stopped doing that because the infection rates are still having these spikes that they keep talking about, and there's more people vaccinated than unvaccinated. So they just stopped reporting about it. And there's just a lot of information where there's people skewed left and right. There's people asking scientists. There's scientists like yourself that have that come on a, a show to talk about this type of thing because there's a lot of people that are generally curious about what to do. Now, with the pandemic response thing, my my issue is that they took the narrative or they took the word science, they took that thing that's been built for so long, and they hijacked it. They made it to the point now where they say, trust the science. What science? And now the term when someone says, well, it's science. Well, pff, what? Fact, it's like fact checker. When Science is a methodology. It is yes. not a theology. Science says you put up a hypothesis, and that hypothesis might be this mechanism causes antibiotic resistance, or this vaccine protects you against such and such an infection. And that hypothesis is then tested by experiment. That may be a laboratory experiment, it may be clinical trial. Sometimes it gives you an overwhelmingly clear result. Sometimes it gives you an equivocal result. And sometimes it gives you a result that changes with time because something gives you a short-term benefit, but no long-term benefit and potentially a rare harm. 
And it is absolutely vital that that scientific debate takes place. Now, here, it's been subverted that governments and public health authorities decided essentially lockdown's good, vaccine's good, masks good, ivermectin bad. Now, I'm no proponent of ivermectin. I'm actually a skeptic of it. But there is as little evidence for ivermectin as there is for masks. In fact, there's probably a bit more evidence in favour of ivermectin than there is for masks. And with the vaccines, they got stuck in a rut that because the original data for the vaccines looked good, then they pushed this narrative of everybody and everything, everyone should be vaccinated um, and didn't really accept that they weren't able to cope with the fact that the results gradually became less and less good for the vaccine, even as late as Christmas uh, last year. So at the start of the Omicron wave, the government here had adverts in the newspaper encouraging people to be vaccinated to protect others. And it was patently clear by that stage that the vaccines did not protect well against infection and transmission. They might well protect still against severe disease, but that completely negates the argument for uh, for, for mass vaccination in the hopes of getting a herd immunity. What I was saying about science, though, just the whole preface to that was that it got they took the term of it where now people won't trust the scientists. For instance, even if you say you're a scientist, there's someone that doesn't agree with you, decides this is someone who's just anti-vax and wants to move on. When instead of looking at the data, the data of things that show you that, no, there is a bunch of stuff that you should raise questions about, but you get labeled as such. And this is where we get into this area now that as seems to be in going and headed in this direction. There's a lot of people that just don't want to trust anything that's being said unless it's said on the news. And I think it's, it's extremely dangerous because yeah. well, people, people will become distrusting of other good vaccines, be it against measles or HPV or, or, or many other things, diphtheria even, where we have good vaccines which have worked for years and years. Because of what's happened here, they will become generally distrustful and uh, not get other good vaccines, which hazard a resurgence of um, infectious diseases that had largely disappeared. Well, it's going to leak even farther than that if you think about people that are refusing to go to a hospital because they don't trust their institutions anymore. See, the thing is, is that when I talk to scientists and I say the word vaccine about this vaccine, they say, don't call it that, call it a gene therapy because they don't want the word vaccine to be installed into people's heads as this means that all vaccines are bad. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that this one wasn't as effective as it th that they were saying to do. That's why they were incentivizing people. I think in my town, they were offering $600 if you got your shot. And then they started making it to a point where instead of incentivizing people, enough people had been incentivized already. And some people did get it from that. They decided, okay, now your job's going to require it. And people lost their jobs and it became a really, really big issue. And I don't think people really talk about it now, but if you look and just type in mandates on your Google or whatever, you're going to see there's a lot of judges that are striking these cases down. They're like, no, we're not going to 
force these people to get their shot or anything like that. But news doesn't report that because it doesn't fit with whatever they're trying to push. And I just raise the question to people to just question things. There's a lot of things. And I've talked to a lot of people who've talked about the real data behind these things where I go, where are you getting this? Can I see this? A lot of the stuff, like a lot of the journals, the ones that are getting at the top results are things that are saying the exact thing that they've been saying throughout the pandemic from Fauci and all these people. And I go, but this isn't what I'm hearing. What scares me is when I have a friend who's trying to have a kid, and I think she had a kid over a year ago, but when she was trying to have a kid and she, I think she eventually got pregnant, she asked me, she goes, I'm so hesitant on getting the vaccine. And I said, well, I mean, do whatever you feel. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but her job was mandating it and she had to leave her job. And then there's all these things coming out now about birth issues and, or people that were losing a baby or something like that. And he starts to go, what's real. Where do I go? How do I find the answers? Because you have a lot of people that are confused and I'm not the type of person that wants to run with a piece of paper saying this fits my narrative. I'm going to say it, but you haven't heard any of these figureheads talk about any of these issues. They might publish it on their site and not let anybody know about it, but they haven't openly said it on an open platform an open discussion. None of Fauci or any of these people will come on a podcast and talk about these types of things, which I'm like, this is what people need from you. This is what people want to hear. They don't want to hear you on a Carl or Tucker Carlson segment. They don't want to hear you on CNN. They want to hear you naturally in a conversation, talk about questions that the general public has. And I think at least in my town, the whole COVID thing is just, everyone's forgotten about it. We're all back to normal hundred percent, but there are places that I hear about states that my friends live in and they talk about, oh, you got to wear your mask in here. You got to do this. And there's all these restrictions going on. It seems like another world where I start going. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's the same in the UK that things have gone back to normal There's maybe about 10% of people wearing masks on the tube and there's no longer any particular pressure to get vaccinated. But then I look to travel to other countries and I find that there's a welter of other restrictions still in place, which are inconvenient at least and, and onerous at most. And um, as we come back to the vaccines, mandates would have been reasonable if COVID had a high mortality rate for all groups, and if the vaccines gave long-term protection. But in reality here, we have a disease where the risk is very stratified, and essentially if you're elderly and vulnerable, it is a high-risk disease, but if you're young and healthy, it's a very low-risk uh, disease, and where the vaccines give only a very brief protection. That these are not suitable vaccines. Whether you morally support a case for mandates of any vaccine or not is irrelevant. These are not sufficiently good vaccines to, 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 to warrant a mandate. Did you think that they thought maybe the reason why they were mandating it or pushing so much behind the vaccines is what you said before about the data looked good in the beginning? Or do you think that they just eventually thought they would perfect it and make it better? So let's roll it out now and then eventually we'll make it to what we're saying it is because I, I, th I, I think I was writing what I said before in that the early data looked good and they thought that if they could get a sufficiency of people vaccinated then they could get a true herd immunity and get the disease to die out 
In fact, that has gone awry for two reasons. The one that we've emphasized so far, which is that the vaccines only give a brief protection, but secondarily, because the virus kept evolving and we got more and more transmissible variants, latterly Omicron. And um, you, you do the sums, the protection you've got a few months after vaccination versus the R number for the virus, this is the sort of vulnerable population. These vaccines are not good enough to stop the presently circulating variants. Uh, they may have thought that they would be able to get better vaccines over time, and there has been some effort in that direction, but it's, it's tricky. And there's also a more fundamental problem called um, the Hoskins effect or original antigenic sin. Now, the, the point of this is that your immune system is somewhat lazy and it remembers a pathogen, a virus or whatever, in the first form it saw it. So notoriously with influenza, you get influenza the first time, you make a perfect immune response to it, you get influenza a second time and your immune think system thinks, oh, I know what this is. And it makes a response to the original strain of influenza, not actually the one that you've got. And so you never get quite as perfect a response subsequently. Now, where there's a concern with COVID vaccines here is that the vaccines uh, work on the basis of making you make the spike protein of the original Wuhan variant and then mounting an immune response to it. But you're no longer going to get infected with the Wuhan variant. You're going to get infected with Delta or more commonly nowadays, Omicron. And you've got a mismatch. And it may be that the vaccine actually impedes you making a good immune response to the strain that you've actually got. It's not in the normal way of things. It would not be seen as good medical practice to be vaccinating with a vaccine directed against just one strain of an organism because other strains will expand to fill the gap. And that's what you're seeing here. And worse, because you've primed the immune system first to respond to the Wuhan spike protein, it becomes very hard to train the immune system subsequently to respond to other spike proteins as the virus changes. Do you think that these institutions look foolish now? I mean, when I say look foolish, I'm talking about the fact that they denied natural immunity in the beginning. And now I'm seeing that they're doing studies about natural immunity and now recognizing it. And at the same time as well, too, if we go back to the word ivermectin, there's a trial in my town right now with a CV6 study that's practicing three different types of medications that might help out with COVID. They also are injecting people with COVID or giving people COVID, which I think is nuts to be able to test these medications. But OK, if someone wants to sign up for it and get paid, sure. Um, but they're testing ivermectin. They're testing these monoclonal antibodies. They're testing a bunch of stuff to see if these actually help 
people get over COVID. So, I mean, this was something that before they said, no, this is horse paste and this is that and this is that. And I've seen the whole 180 that they've done. And I go, that makes them look even more foolish because in my whole thing with this pandemic is I get that if you're doing an emergency response with a vaccine and this is what you have to do, but they, when you're sick, you take anything, really, you want anything to make you feel better. You don't really care for just one specific thing. If I told you that someone cured their cancer with cheese, would you say, oh my God, that's they're dumb. Why did they choose cheese? Or would you say, oh my God, that's amazing. That's a rare case, but that's amazing. But well, I, 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 I would be very skeptical because okay. well, I, example aside, I, let me get to I, the main, I, let me get to on David, David, let me get to the main point and then do that. It's just a dumb example. We don't need to expound upon, but if, if I said that about that but the thing with the vaccines is if you got over it with natural immunity people would yell at you or they would say something like are you still going to get your shot you were like slant you were really kind of looked at in a different light than if you got a shot and it showed how people were brainwashed to get this vaccine rather than an idea of natural immunity when i mentioned i got covid and i got over it in two days without taking a shot people didn't give me the appraise that they gave people that were vaccinated and got over it oh and that's what i don't like is that now you've just subjected it to only there's one cure and it's not effective as they were saying it was well there's lots of points there <clears throat> i do think a, a vast amount of propaganda and pressure was put out a lot of it not well founded in science. The evidence is that natural immunity gives a longer lasting and broader protection than vaccine induced immunity. And, you know, that's not entirely surprising. Your immune system has been exposed to the whole virus. You've been exposed initially via the respiratory tract whereas the vaccines are being introduced directly to the bloodstream. Um, it, 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 it's unsurprising that uh, natural infection gives a longer lasting immunity, but I, I agree that the public health authorities were extremely slow to acknowledge this, and they were very quiet about doing so. Coming to ivermectin and other so-called treatments and prophylactics, so hydroxychloroquine also, the, the data are very mixed. The trials that have been completed and reported are generally of very poor quality. One of the larger trials of ivermectin done in Egypt got retracted because of possibly fraudulent data, and so on. It's a mess. But what is disgraceful is that large organisations like the NIH and the Wellcome Trust have not managed over two years to organise, run and complete trials on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Assertions of benefit for, from these medications were made very early on, and it should have been possible to do large scale, both prophylactic and treatment trials by this stage, which would satisfy any reasonable person. And it's a disgrace that they were not done. Do you think that 
compared to if we compare it to other pandemic response, I know we said this isn't like something new, but do you think that just with the type of vaccine that it is, the gene therapy that it is, that all these measures are new? I mean, if this, if we decided to take a whole different track from all the other pandemics or all our other responses to pandemics, which we did do during this pandemic, I start to wonder why, you know, and it leads to even bigger questions of why can't you sue Pfizer if you do suffer from an adverse reaction from one of these things I get because of a mass rollout, but there's no other companies that have that safeguard Johnson and Johnson doesn't have that safeguard AstraZeneca didn't have that safeguard there's plenty of other vaccines that were out there being produced that didn't have that safeguard but had the same rollout measures. It's just a specific amnesty for Pfizer. Well, that's that's to do with U.S. legislation on which I'm I'm no expert. Uh, what I would say is that essentially four different types of vaccine were developed: the messenger RNA vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna came up with, adenovirus vector vaccines, so that's J and J, AstraZeneca, also Gamaleya in Russia. Um, and then you've got the spike protein, the, the Novavax uh, product, and lastly, inactivated virus, which the Chinese have used if extensively, also Valneva. But the emphasis internationally, the, the market leaders have become the mRNA vaccines. Um, <laughs> Whether or not that was the right decision is is questionable. I mean, is it, um, but is this because again, this is again a reflection of doing things at a rush. It's a reflection of who got the first ostensibly effective uh, vaccine available. It's a consequence <laughs> of the bizarre spats that AstraZeneca got themselves into with the European Union. Um, in terms of um, people who assert that they've been harmed by, by vaccines, one of the problems is the extent to which governments were persuaded to indemnify manufacturers. But I come back to the same point that th these vaccines were all licensed for emergency use. And that should have been guidance to use them in the vulnerable, high-risk populations, which essentially is anybody beyond late middle age, plus a few others who are vulnerable for other reasons. It's not justified to use these vaccines in younger age groups. And that should have been stopped once it was realised that any protection they were giving was only short term. Yeah, but now they're making articles. I think there was a news post I saw a couple of weeks ago about two to uh, two to six year olds or two to five year olds. They're able to go get their shot of uh, get a vaccine. Is it a booster shot? Because they already got some of them already have a shot in their arm. So you get to this point of like, what about we go back to natural immunity? I mean, we all knew in the beginning that we're lucky that this pandemic didn't really affect kids. It didn't have this impact on kids. And they're saying with vax or with um, variants that it could hurt kids or could be kids damaged by it. But I've seen more accounts of kids that are suffering from an adverse re reaction from a vaccine than they are from getting um, uh, COVID. So you have this area of like, 
they're still pressuring getting the vaccine in younger and younger ages. My whole thing was, I mean, the, if the elderly people, which are the most susceptible, I would say, get let, let them have a vaccine if they want a vaccine, focus on them. But they're pushing it to younger and younger kids, which is going to destroy their aspect of natural immunity and their body being able to build up with it. I mean, when you're a kid, how many kids shove things in their mouth, their immune system is constantly like evolving and trying to change and rapidly well, they, grow. The, the, the little bats spend most of the winter sniffling away with one respiratory infection after another. And COVID would come into that list of respiratory infections they get, and they will get a natural immunity to it. And as I say, giving, giving them a vaccine is unnecessary because they're incredibly unlikely to get severe COVID and uh, may be harmful, both because of the small risk, and it is a small risk of myocarditis, but it is a tangible risk, particularly in boys, and secondarily, because the vaccine that's being used is mismatched to the circulating uh, COVID strains. Um, risk setting up an original antigenic sin Hoskins type effect. There's, I, I can see no good reason whatsoever for vaccinating children, adolescents or young adults. Uh, I think there is a good debate to be had as to whether the tipping point for where you should be vaccinating is 45, 55 or 65. I think that's a debate that's worth having, but vaccinating the young and healthy is, is to my mind, inappropriate. Is it because of the older ages, their um, immune response probably isn't as efficient as a younger person's immune response? Well, it, it's, it's quite clear that the older you are, the more likely you are to get severe COVID. And there's various theories about... Uh, why that must may be, but um, clearly your immune response as a child is programmed, has evolved to be able to uh, deal with lots and lots of respiratory viruses and essentially set you up for life. And as you reach the last uh, decade or two of your life, that, that ability starts to wane somewhat. When it comes to the area of masks, do you think masks are effective? Do you think masks are ineffective? Do you think that they're okay in some scenarios? Because I, I, I kind of stand in that boat. Like, I feel like in some aspects, it masks are effective and maybe preventing something. But I also think that the maintenance behind masks, from what I've heard from Dr. Carla Peters, is that you basically need to be washing it every time you use it. Like, you, And nobody's doing that. Most people wear the same mask over and over again and don't wash it for months. So you're actually making more um, infectious material go into your body than actually lessening it. The, 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 the hard evidence that they work is absent, that uh, the Danmask trial was the best trial done, where people were either wore a mask or didn't wear a mask and they counted in Denmark the number of uh, cases of infection and the, the protection was not statistically significant. A trial was also done in Bangladesh where they, they did their utmost to interpret the statistics to say that there was a mild protective effect. However, the mask use there was connected also with a lot of education and pressure on people to protect themselves. So it wasn't really a test of masks per se. I, I think also 
we, we all of us have to accept now that this virus is endemic, that the vaccines give only a brief protection. We are all going to get COVID. There is absolutely no point whatsoever inconveniencing yourself and creating a lot of litter by wearing masks at this point. Yeah, I mean... Because you, you're going to get it. Oh, masks work. Suppose masks <laughs> work. On average, you get it a fortnight later. So what? Yeah. Well, there's many more masks. That, that, that's, that's, that's the sort of advantage they might give. It, it's, it, it's minimal. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a physical thing. I think it's just because people feel more comfortable wearing a mask. Like it's since they can physically feel it on them, like wearing a hat or something that it does apply some type of layer of security for their ego or layer of security for their personal things. I don't see any like I, I'm not a, a, a fighter on the mask thing. If I, I have to wear one when I go to the doctor, but even then we talk about personalized medicine again. My doctor sees me once every six months for 10 minutes. And they get a thorough diagnosis that I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. It's just, there's, they have a lot of patients. It's hard for a doctor to have this individual care, which I felt like should have been put into the pandemic doing people by a case to case basis. But if you go to the mask idea out there, it's a social identity thing. Now people identify if you wear a mask, you're a good person, which I think is dropping off. I see a lot more people not wearing masks. I see the more fight go on to the vaccine end where people say, if you're not vaccinated, you're not a good person and you want to kill everybody, which doesn't make sense because the data doesn't support that. But it's how it's been brainwashed. When I mentioned to you earlier about the institutions, you think people might be losing faith in it because of the idea that the words that they used have hijacked from what their original meanings were. We talk about people maybe neglecting going to a hospital when they're hurt because they don't trust the hospitals. They don't trust the doctors. You have more people staying at home and dealing with things. If you think lockdowns might have caused cancer misdiagnoses or all these other things that happened during lockdowns, imagine there being no forced lockdowns, but people refusing to go to the hospital to get checked up even more than they do now. We know it's an issue with men. Men really don't go to the hospital and get checked. But imagine how many people now are just going to be hesitant. I know so many mothers of little kids that are like, I don't, I'm rather homeschool my kid. I don't trust the education system. I rather homeschool my kid or I rather, uh, you know, I, go to a doctor or something like that. I'd rather have my kid at home and use herbal supplements. Do you want that direction? Cause I think medicine is really important. I think it's really this something that we need to have trust in, but we watch this get slaughtered in this pandemic. I, I think, I think it varies quite a lot by country and by cultural group. Certainly I would have said early going back to 2020, the real height of the pandemic, we had a lot of people who were frightened to go to hospitals. They recognized that hospitals had a lot of nosocomial circulation of COVID and they did their utmost to keep out of them, uh, wisely or not. So uh, throughout the pandemic, we had um, what about 500 more people per week dying at home in the UK than normal. Now, um, just to give you context there, uh, in an average week, what about, uh, about 11,000 people die in an average, in, in a normal week, normal way of things. So 5% extra dying, uh, than dying at home rather than dying in hospital tells you that something odd is going on. 
and surely that was people who didn't want to go to hospital, didn't want to trouble the hospital. Um, our problem now in the UK is rather different, and this may well be different to the United States. And, and that is that the general practitioners, and in the UK, you're registered under a general practitioner, and you're supposed to go and see the GP first, and he or she thinks there's something seriously wrong with you, they'll then refer you on to a hospital specialist. The, the GPs in general practitioners in the UK, uh, during the pandemic were encouraged to do telephone consultations, reduce the risk of uh, infection being transmitted, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And a lot of them seem to have found that they rather like this. And so it's now become incredibly hard to get a face-to-face -face consultation with a general practitioner, which, you know, you cannot have your lump felt and palpitated over a telephone consultation. And I'm sure this is leading to a lot of bad diagnosis. It leads to some people, and that includes myself, just getting so frustrated with the system that you bypass the GP and you go and see a consultant privately. And you know, that, that costs you, and not everybody can afford to do that. Other people, because they find they can't get a face-to-face -face consultation with the GP, or indeed they can't get any sort of consultation within a month anyway, go to the uh, uh, what we would call the accident and emergency, what you would call the emergency room at the hospital. And these places now you will find they have seven, 10 hour queues of people waiting to be seen with the doctors there complaining like mad that these are people who should have gone to see their general practitioner. But they can't get to see the general practitioner, leastways not face to face. So the, the, the whole system of the National Health Service, which in a way is unique to England, the UK, has come out of this pandemic really very chaotically. Well, has it well the US is different and the, the uh, continental Europe, which is more a social insurance model than a statist model, is different again. Do you think that the pandemic not only just caused a lot of disruption, but also made some permanent things that shouldn't necessarily be permanent, such as the idea of telemedicine um, that's happening over here in the States as well, too? Doctors are more than willing to book a telephone appointment or Zoom call meeting um, thing, but you can't you can't have medicine done that way. You can't have severe like how is that person going to know a problem through a Zoom camera? You know, there's not this aspect of actual medicine being done. And I get it if it's like patient stress load. Like doctors feel like they have a lot of patients that are already on their schedule, so maybe a couple telemedicines here. But I mean, then lessen the stress load because I think it's now become acceptable to do these types of telemedicine things. And I see many areas now, many areas in business, for instance, how many people say, sorry, I'm late. It was because of like this or because of that, like business transactions, deliveries from supplement stores or whatever you want to say that talk about, oh, COVID's got everything backed up. We're 
two years out of the lockdown, man. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? COVID's got everything backed up. That's a common concern at my work. I asked Walmart the other day where I was just like, Hey, like, where's this? They're like, Oh, COVID's got everything backed up on the supply chain. I'm like, is that just everybody's excuse now? Like we've been open for a pretty long time where I start wondering if there's these permanent things that have been solidified in cement that are now going to be because they became acceptable during the pandemic when everyone was on lockdown, they have now become acceptable in the area of where we're not in lockdowns anymore. Well, there are two points there. The first one is with regard to telemedicine. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for a follow-up consultation. Once you've had a physical examination by the doctor, some treatment's been initiated, wants to check two or three weeks later how things are going. Perfectly reasonable to do that by phone. You're better, you're not better, you're not better. Come in, we'll re-examine you. That's reasonable. Um, in terms of customer service, yes, it has got incredibly worse during uh, lockdown. And there is a great aversion by a lot of companies and particularly government organisations to rectify the problem. I think I mentioned earlier that there are now delays of several months in the UK to get a new driving license or to get, uh, to get a driving test arranged or to uh, get a new passport. Well, if we take the term endemic and just accepting that you're eventually going to get COVID, it's just going to be something that we're just going to have to live with which I mean, it sounds like the flu. I mean, we're used to the flu in some aspects. And I think with Omicron, it's kind of just like a flu. But when we get to, we talk about supply chain issues, when it, when they say endemic, does that leak into supply chain issues where we're just going to have to get used to the idea that everything's going to get blamed on COVID and be this type of thing that we're never, ever going to forget about, or just going to get used to because now it's messing up every aspect of business. Like the word endemic doesn't just leak into, you might get COVID. It leaks into all aspects of what's now deemed acceptable because it was acceptable to do or try during the pandemic. You know, there's there's that type of thinking. Well, that again, there are, two, there are two separate things there. With regard to supply chains, a considerable amount of uh, stuff is shipped from China. And China, needless to say, has followed a strict zero COVID. <laughs> you, didn't like, you don't like being welded in your house? Which it continues to try to pursue. I know. I think it will end in in disaster, but that that's their prerogative. To, to, but but that is that is disrupting supply chains. The war in the Ukraine is also disrupting uh, uh, grain supplies, and it's uh, dis disrupting uh, fuel supplies, particularly to Europe, less so the United States, you're much more self-sufficient. So th there are genuine supply chain issues. But on the other hand, uh, COVID has become a catch-all excuse for everything and uh, 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 every disruption. And once it's endemic, well, flu is endemic, um, you're no longer seeing organizations where, oh dear, a third of our staff are off this week because they've actually got COVID. It is bedding in, it is becoming endemic um, and it will be just like the flu at the end of it. I definitely think with the variants with the Omicron, I guess, being the last one or the one that we have 
that's more common. It's the current one, yes. Yeah, it it seems like a lot of people have taken the death factor out of it. Like before, in the beginning, if you got COVID, it was like immediate death sentence. But now it's like, oh, there's you're just gonna have to isolate for a couple of days and hope you feel better. But that original perception that COVID was a death sentence was delusional. I know it was scary. Now, it was uh, scary. If you, if you were 80 and in a care home when you got a couple of strokes beforehand, you got COVID, yep, there was probably a 20% chance it was going to kill you. But if you were my sort of age and I'm, I'm low 60s and I got it, the um, and I'm otherwise in decent health, the chance it was going to kill me was under 1%. Get down to your sort of age, it's a fraction of a percent. And once you're down to kidney links, it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So th this idea that it was a death sentence was delusional, but we have now got the circulation of uh, an even less lethal strain and um, lots of people have got prior exposure, whether through vaccine or whether through prior infection. Um, so so the, the death rate has gone down markedly. Why do you think it was so purported so bad? Like, why do you think that it, it was just conditioned in a way that you were going to die if you got this? Even though a lot of people knew about the 99.7%, whatever survival rate, there was still that. Like, even when I got COVID, I was like, okay, day one wasn't bad. Day two wasn't bad. Day three, I feel, I kind of feel something. Day four, I felt something. I only count two days I had it because there were only two days I was like, one, I needed to like kind of lie down a little bit, but I still like moved around my house and stuff, but I definitely wasn't going grocery shopping or to the beach. But then the day before that, I kind of felt like something was like starting to go down where on that second day, I was like, would have been better if I would have gotten vaccinated, but then I was over it the next day. I think there was a fear for that for a lot of people, you know, they go through that two weeks in their head and they start wondering, is the next day going to be worse? Am I just going to get worse? It's, it's an extremely variable disease. Some people, and this is irrespective of whether they've been vaccinated or not, get it very mildly. Some people get it so very severely. And as I look around my circle of friends and acquaintances, I can see, I can see all of that variation. I mean, I, I had it subsequent to being vaccinated about five or six months after I'd had the AstraZeneca vaccine. I got it. I felt distinctly achy and unwell for a couple of days. Um, one paracetamol seemed to clear most of the aches. Um, and after that, it was no worse than lots of colds I've had over the years. In fact, significantly milder. But again, maybe I was lucky. Maybe it was the residual effect of the vaccine as well uh, ameliorated. You could, you, you can never say from a clinical trial of one, and it, it is a very variable infection. But what is clear is that the high mortality risk is very much among the very elderly. And then if you're sort of middle-aged and you're obese and you're diabetic, um, that shifts your, your risk higher. Do you think there should have been more care or more of an, at least in the States, um, there was not really an explanation, I think about 48 months in, almost two, actually it was two years, I think, um, about talking about, well, no, it wasn't 48 months, 36 months, I think it was. They didn't mention a single thing about getting healthy or eating healthy foods. They didn't mention a single thing on the news. They said, you know, stay inside your house, go by lockdowns. And then not even a month after that news broadcast of Fauci on the television, they talked about actually vitamin D 
can help eliminate COVID. I mean, I saw a bunch of articles that like one smoking could help you not get COVID. And then there was an article actually smoking might make you more susceptible for COVID. Then there was one about CBD gummies. And there was a lot of stuff being like just spewed out of nowhere where it made it kind of difficult. But the one thing that they never openly said to people was like, hey, maybe get in shape a little bit, lose a little bit of weight. If you feel unhealthy, maybe take a, a step outside or something like that. And they purported it, it, you, it's notable if you go right back to the 1918-19 flu pandemic the advice then was to spend as much time as possible outside in the fresh air rather than cooped up with infected or possibly infected relatives sit in the house and in, in the dark and freaking get everybody sick yeah but uh i i i i agree with you that one of the byproducts of lockdown, and heaven knows one sees this with friends and relatives too, that they, they shut themselves away and then scoffed lots of comfort food because they were bored and frightened. And they've put on a couple of stones, so that's 28 pounds to you. I will say, I know someone that put on 60 pounds, so... I mean, you get into this aspect. I mean, people were depressed and that depression leads you to food. It leads you to more comfort items and stuff like that. And people's food consumption went up. Their alcohol consumption went up. Uh, a, a podiatrist I occasionally see tells me a lot of his diabetic patients stuck at home. That's a weird. The diabetes and. and I, I... I don't know if you have this. I'm pretty sure you don't because it's a state's thing. But the Declaration of Independence, there's one thing in there that um, if they because they did they do talk about lockdowns. If you talk about um, lockdowns, they said that the only thing that they can't close is churches and synagogues must remain open. Mm. Not they, there's no amnesty for alcohol stores, but that was the complete opposite during the pandemic. And I get it because people going through withdrawal symptoms and stuff, but they didn't give anybody the option or opportunity to go to church. They were actually throwing people in jail. Uh, there was that one account, I think, in New Jersey of a church where people, a bunch of people showed up and they refused to close. And the cops came in there, took the main priest or pastor, whoever, and took him to jail. And then they had a bunch of people. They sent them all home or they gave them fines. I mean, they had a lot of this type of situations that were going on where it was like, this is just weird. I mean, they were charging $5,000 fines in the beginning if you left your house. That's that's what scared me about the whole measure with China as well, too, where I was like, we're heading in that direction. If there wasn't a change, if there wasn't enough people that spoke out about it, we were going to head towards that direction. Yeah, it was a, a disgraceful um, suspension of civil liberties and normal rights. And was utterly disproportionate to a disease that very clearly was not the bubonic plague. Do you think that it, that was because of vaccines that they opened up like no, that? No, no, I mean, they, they, uh, um, the, 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 the most stringent lockdowns, at least in the UK, were before they had vaccines and before they had any certainty that they yeah, would get I know. You, you, the vaccines. It's not, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, do you think that the lockdowns and all that went away because of the idea of vaccines and the confidence that was put behind it? Like it just kind of opened people up. Like people went out to parties and group meetings and all these types of things once they got vaccinated because they thought, oh, I have a, I'm immune to COVID. And then they realize now that, no, that's not the case. Certainly in, in the UK, I mean, the mass, the mass vaccination was done really between January and June of 2021. Then we had a grand reopening in July of uh, 
2021. So yes, the, the suspension of lockdown was very much predicated on we've got people vaccinated, things are going to be okay now. Well, actually, it was a it was not quite right. But you did see other European countries, Austria, the Netherlands, reinstitute lockdowns as Omicron struck uh, through the Christmas 21, early 22 period. They tried again to use lockdowns. Didn't do them much good, but they tried. Because I'm wondering, because I then I know now they're talking about a nasal spray. Um, if you didn't want to get vaccinated, they have a nasal spray that actually might help um, protect you from COVID. And then there's that new pill as well um, that's coming out too. Where I wonder if this is going to give people like some type of confidence, like a, like a placebo effect in a sense. I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying, but that's the confidence. Like with the vaccines, people had this confidence like i'm not going to get covid since i'm vaccinated and they can go maybe spreading it even more so there's this aspect of people instead of just naturally letting their body just get used to maybe get a cold and then get over it with the omicron variant they feel like there's going to need to be this protection method which is a nasal spray or a pill well well and good if somebody can develop a nasal spray which does ameliorate symptoms um or, or, or prevent infection, good luck to them, but let's see what the clinical trials uh, show on this. Uh, I can't see why that should interfere with the development of immunity. Uh, I think there are more questions hang over the particular types of vaccines and how they, they may lead to suboptimal immunity in people who would be better off actually getting an infection and developing a natural immunity. Um, I've got no problem with people trying to develop uh, medications. All I would uh, comment is that we've not done very well over many, many years against four other co uh, coronaviruses, which are responsible for about a fifth of all common colds. Uh, so I shan't hold my breath on the topic. Do you think that we put a little bit too much push towards taking a medicine to get over things than trusting our natural immune response? Um, it's it's I, not dismissing I, I, medicine. I, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to try with medications and the uh, Molnupiravir, Merck's drug, uh, Paxlovid, the, the Pfizer one. I've had clinical trials which do show perhaps not dramatically but do show some benefit likewise monoclonals have some benefit in in uh, severe infection uh, and um you know perhaps over time somebody is going to come up with a really good cure but what i think is naive is to suppose that we're going to do it swiftly i agree with that i think particularly, people particularly given our experience with various sorts of common cold, including common colds due to four other coronaviruses. Uh, I, I would say that in, in many ways, I'm rather fatalistic about respiratory pandemics, that as I started off saying at the beginning of this, this podcast, they're things that hit us every two or three generations. And in a way, we must accept this. Sure, let us as scientists and researchers 
try to find better medications, try to find vaccines that work, but let us let us not hold our breath in the hopes that we're going to come up with something miraculous and swift. The odds are that we aren't. And just like our forebears, we, we, we have to sweat these things, just as in the 1890s and indeed in, in a far worse pandemic in 1918-90. I don't think that's fatalistic. I think that's just being more dependent or more independent on your own rather than just trusting that some magic pill is going to fix everything as well too i'm not i wasn't saying it to dismiss medicine at all i was just saying i think there's a large push for people to get themselves into bad shape or get themselves in a situation and then be like well they have medicine to fix it and i go man you you also want to take care of yourself as well too i think you need to look at every option and avenue especially when you're in a pandemic um to be able to help yourself out in a situation that you might necessarily be equipped or not equipped for absolutely it's it's prudent to do your best to stay healthy and to eat well and to not drink or smoke too much and to take some exercise all that is prudent <laughs> has, has been recognized as such for for many many years but uh, living under lockdown was actually uh, counterproductive to it it was good for like the first two weeks when you didn't have to work. But then once it started going on longer than that, I think a lot of people were like, oh, my God, can I just go back to my job that I hate? You know, I'm right. Come on. Come on. It was you good. To, I, I, I mean, if you weren't retired. I, I, but. In, in, part, in part, you are. But we <laughs> see actually in the UK, and I don't know what it's like in the States, have a lot, have a lot of people who've actually decided they like working from home and getting them to go back to the office is extremely difficult. I Yeah. That's it, uh, certainly among the the, the, the the bureaucratic middle class state employees in particular, very, very hard to persuade them back to the office. From my talks with a psychologist, he said one of the hardest things is that when you make work at your home, it makes work your home. So then you have this issue of trying to separate the two. And that's what a lot of people had issues with. Um, even work would overstep their boundaries, at least in the States over here. People would be, you know, doing something at night or watching TV. You know, when you go to a job, you're there for a certain amount of time and you go home. But if your work is your home, then you randomly get a text. Now you got an essay you got to write or you got some type of thing you got to do. And now you got to take apart from your kids. I mean, it was a lot of people that were very, I mean, still probably going through separating that relationship between their home and their work. Yeah, that, 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 that's true, but you've also got a, a substantial stratum of people in sort of minor, minor clerical tasks who are no longer doing what they should be doing. And, um, you know, they saved a lot on childcare, they saved a lot on uh, travel fares, and they're only too happy to sit at home not processing the bit of paper for their employees, perhaps the passport office. I think a lot of people also got used that's to why it takes six months to get a passport instead of one month. No, oh, it's COVID, man. You got to understand. It's got everything backed up. I just, I, I thought it was interesting when planes started to let people travel without masks and you got to see how much people freaked out about that. It was just like, what is going on? Like, I think there's a lot of things that we're going to be see affect or be affected in the next couple of years, certain areas, certain departments. And it's, it's just going to be interesting to see it kind of unfold a little bit too, because I think in most places, the whole COVID thing is dropping off. Like people are still aware that it exists, but they don't really like our, 
as worried about it as they were in the very, very beginning. But there are some people that are the ones that get publicized or the ones that get news stories or videos that you see of someone freaking out about telling someone to put on a mask. And it's just like, man, what is, is this going to be like this, like 10, 15 years from now? Like, it's just, it's interesting. It's going to vary country by country. I mean, the UK, as I say, it's, it's now become uncommon to see somebody wearing a mask. Uh, maybe maybe 10% of the people on, on the tube, 5% of people in, in stores, and you get the occasional person who insists on walking down the street in an N95 mask, which uh, <laughs> is, is, is quite baffling. I see people but driving the, cars the, the, and wearing UK, The UK did suspend its rules on masks quite early. Um, you look at a lot of continental Europe, the rules have been much stricter and have been imposed for much longer. Uh, are people going to transition back to not wearing masks? I don't know. And in the Far East, you've got people who, who adopted mask wearing after the SARS-1 outbreak of uh, 2003, I think it was. And it's still commonplace in the winter to you go to Taiwan or South Korea to see people wearing masks because they've got a bit of a cold. Yeah. Well, they, so they do it in a polite aspect. It's going to take a long, long time to wean people off wearing masks. And I, I think it's, it's a bad thing because children don't see facial expressions. They don't learn to read people's faces and it, 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 they, they impede communication. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I think in Taiwan, it's a different reason, though, because Taiwan, they do it to stop them because they, they have a cold. They don't want to get someone else sick. But over here, it's because people want to protect themselves from someone else getting them sick. It's a whole it's a whole different kind of it, it might be a slight difference, but that is pretty important. I mean, the way that we view things as well, too, it happened during the pandemic. If you didn't follow protocols, or you didn't follow any of the things that were being established. You were going to get someone killed. You were going to be this infectious carrier of this thing. And I think that was the worst thing as you saw society tearing at itself. I mean, I, I really wonder with society, for instance, it's kind of like my main concern is, I mean, it's not just people, but the fighting amongst information or discussions that should have been had like this one was. This is a discussion. It's a conversation. It's two people talking about something. It's a feature of this this part of the early uh, early twenty first century that so many debates become so so rancorous so easily, and th this is this is another example of it and uh, of this pattern of so called culture wars we've seen at present. I think it's a a, a very sad development that we during covid it became so difficult in the mainstream media to to have a rational discussion such as we're having today and to say look these vaccines do have some merits but they're certainly not in the category of good vaccines in the way the vaccines against diphtheria and uh, um, measles their, their efficacy is 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 modest at best and that we have a disease which is is so variable according to some of these age and risk factors that has to determine uh, uh, your risk benefit ratio for for vaccination. It's very sad that that debate 
couldn't be had on the, the, the main news channels in the UK, the British, uh, British Broadcasting Corporation and ITV. I don't even see any news stations that wanted to cover that in the first place. They were more happy just spitting out the same narrative that everybody else is spitting out. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think they went on to a different topic. It was Russia for a little while. Now, I haven't watched the news in a, in, a, in a few months now, so I don't know what the topic is now. I know they ended up hitting climate change and a bunch of other things. You just see them go around the board where I just go, I hope people aren't taking the news as seriously as they did back in the day. I think you need to look to more independent things, but also be careful what sources you're using. Yeah, I mean, my, my view in news sources is you must always scan a, a wide range of different <laughs> sources and see if they're all saying the same thing or they're all saying different things. And, uh, you know, increasing number of alternative out news outlets have come up during the pandemic. Some of, I think, extremely good quality. Um, Unheard, for example, uh, spiked online. I think have had in the UK uh, very good coverage. Yeah. Um, well, David, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Do you have any sites or anything you want to promote? Um, I uh, they can find me on the University of East Anglia site. Uh, they can get details of me there. Do you have Twitter? No, I'm not on Twitter. Good for you. <laughs> it's not it's not as fun I, as people I, I can consume so much of my time <laughs> um david <laughs> without getting into social media battles as well i agree it's um it's a, it's a mess social media is a mess but it's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode of out of the